0: And then finally, what is the ultimate goal of the gospel? What is the gospel actually getting us to? What's up, Greg? That's a good question, Greg. Well, why why is Christ at 3 BC instead of 0 AD? Well, because when that system, that dating system, first was put into place, the person who reckoned it had Christ being born at 0 AD, but... It historically was not the correct time. He was probably born a couple of years before that. And there are various reasons for why it's not 0 AD, but he, the person who came up with the system thought it was, and that's why he came up with the system. Not convenient for us, but that was, that was the way it was done. Anyway, that's a good question. Um, to get back to what I was saying now, these are our goals for today. We're going to look at many scriptures as part of Answering these questions, we won't be spending a lot of time, though, on any particular passage. You have handouts with you today that go along with these seven C's. Please be sure to take notes related to how these seven C's actually explain the gospel. So that will be a useful tool for us as we share the gospel with others. Let's pray before we continue today. Lord God... I pray that you would give me the ability to, ability to explain clearly what the gospel is, to answer these questions. Lord, I praise you, God, for the truth that you have revealed, this great message, Lord, that is the gospel. Thank you for revealing it to us. Thank you for saving us. Oh, God, I pray that we would be even more equipped and more impacted by the gospel through the class this morning. Lord, do this by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, when we ask the question, what is the gospel, we can answer that in a very expansive way or in a very simple and basic way. On the one end, we would be right to say that if we were to be asked, what is the gospel? We would say, the Bible. The whole Bible is the gospel. And I've argued this in a previous lesson. It's all the message about Christ. So to explain the gospel is to explain the whole Bible. That could be a pretty long endeavor. On the other hand, if someone has a background in the Bible, then the gospel can be reduced to one or two sentences. We actually hear a simple summary of the gospel right in the Bible. I have this verse for you on the screen. This comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 5. Here's what Paul says the gospel is. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand by which also you were saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. The few verses after this talk about other appearances of Christ before his ascension, but this, these five verses will suffice for us today. What three, what three or four pieces of information does Paul consider primary when summarizing or explaining the gospel? Give me one. Say that again. That's right. Christ died according to the scriptures. What else? He was, he rose again. What else was included? He was, yeah, he died for our sins, he and he was buried. And you could also include that he appeared to the brethren. But that's basically it, right? If you want to summarize the gospel, it would be that Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to the brethren. Now, how many sentences did it take to mention all these gospel elements? It's three verses, but how many sentences? One. One. It's one sentence. But would this one sentence be sufficient for you and I to explain the gospel to our co-workers or our classmates or our neighbors? What do you think? Would this be sufficient? What do you say, Rob? Why not? Right, we certainly see a lot of examples in the Bible of more expansive explanations of the gospel. And certainly I think most of you would agree that this one sentence by itself wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be enough to explain the gospel to somebody else. They need some context. They need to know the significance of some of the terms in the sentence. Christ died for our sins. Why is that important? Why is it important that he rose again? Why is the phrase according to the scriptures important? They need a little bit more explanation. We often talk about the gospel being good news. That comes from the word for gospel, evangelion, or where we get the word evangelical or evangelism, and it literally means good, that prefix e-u, and news, anglion, or where we get the, the same root for angel, messenger. So the good message or the good news, they need some context if they're going to understand this good news. And to be more specific, for something to be good news, well, no, let me say it like this. Why is the good news of the gospel so good? That's right, Eric. The gospel is good news because it gives us the information that we need for salvation. It shows us the way to salvation. But that implies that without that information, where would we be? We'd be destroyed. We'd be lost. We'd be on our way to destruction. There had to be some bad news. There had to be an understanding of some bad reality, an unfortunate reality, a tragic reality, for the good news to be good news. I'm going to say something. I think you'll, you'll agree with this, but I want to say it very, uh, very poignantly or very, with much emphasis. Before one can appreciate the good news of salvation, he must see the peril that he is in before God. For good news to be truly good, someone has to have heard and understood the bad news first. This is very important for us when we're answering the question, What is the gospel? or if we're trying to explain the gospel, want to know how we present the gospel. We must understand that before someone can appreciate the good news of salvation, they must understand the tragic reality that they are currently in. As I said, another way to say it, a person needs to understand the context, of the rest of the Bible. They need to know what the rest of the Bible says about their spiritual reality. Not just this one sentence from 1 Corinthians fifteen, or even John three, sixteen. Well what else exactly do they need to know? Yes, Paul. oh, mm. oh. Mm. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for mentioning that, Paul. I was not, um, not aware of that, but that certainly makes a lot of sense. This statement here in 1 Corinthians 15, just to repeat what you said, is uh, very likely a creed or an early creed in the church. That This was a summary of belief. This was a, a summary of orthodoxy. This idea uh, that the gospel comes down to Christ died for sins, according to the scriptures, was buried, and was raised again. But certainly for the people who held to that creed or who hold to this statement, they understand what that means. We need to make sure that other people understand what that means and why that's significant. What is that other part of information that people need to know? What is the context of the Bible that they need to know to understand this gospel message? Well, there are a number of ways to answer that question, as there are a number of evangelistic methods designed to communicate the bad news and the good news of the gospel. But a simple method that we can use is the seven seas of history. Actually, the Bible's own chronological outline is a great way to present the gospel, because as we're going to see, the Bible's chronology presents bad news and then good news. But even with the bad news, there's good news, so we'll talk about that as we go forward. Let's now walk through the seven C's of history with an eye to the bad news and the good news as a way to explain the gospel. So let's start with our first C, and you can follow along in your handouts, creation take some notes on, on each one of these Cs related to the gospel. Let's go back and read what it says in Genesis 1. Turn your Bibles to Genesis 1, verse 31. Just to reorient ourselves here. Genesis 1, and we'll read to chapter 2, verse 4. It says, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. We're familiar with this first chapter and uh, its ending. God, as the creator, created a perfect universe that did not have sin, corruption, suffering, or death. And the first humans, Adam and Eve, they lived in an unpolluted, harmonious relationship with God and with each other. They were given jurisdiction over the earth to rule it, cultivate it, multiply upon it. But they received a prohibition. They could not eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, why was that fruit forbidden? Is that arbitrary? God, are you just giving a weird rule? Well, to answer that question, first of all, the creator, God, has the right to set the rules for his creation to follow. If you want to say, God, I I don't think that was a good rule. Well, you're not God. And you're not the creator. You don't have the right to decide that. And we also know from the rest of the scriptures that God's rules, God's commands, God's laws, they are all good. So this prohibition to Adam and Eve, don't eat from this fruit, was a very good law. It was a good thing that God gave it to them. One way to think about God's command, not just this command, but really all the commands he gives them, is that God gave Adam and Eve the opportunity to gain the happiness that comes from being obedient to God. This is the way actually to increase their happiness, not take away their happiness. Not only could they enjoy obedience in ruling and cultivating the earth, as God commanded, but also in not eating the forbidden fruit. So, in the same way for us, and also when we explain the gospel, we can show that God's commands are given to us for our good, and actually for our happiness. But we, like our forefather Adam, we choose to forego the joy that God has planned for us, and we exchange it for a pleasure that is far inferior. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did in our second C, corruption. Let's look at Genesis 3 now. Look back at the section where Eve eats the fruit. Genesis 3, verses 6 to 7. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Let's jump down to verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. There's also some commentary from the New Testament about this event. Just to bring it back to your mind, Romans 5.12, actually Greg preached on this section last week. Romans 5.12 says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Verse 18 and 19 also add more. So then as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men and then verse 19 for us through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners i'm omitting a parts about christ but we'll get to that later as we heard from greg last week when adam ate the fruit his rebellion brought sin into the world and corrupted all of god's very good creation since adam was the first human and the representative of all humans all his represented all his descendants became sinners. They became cursed rebels against God. As a result, you and I and all people became spiritually dead and subject to physical death. Immediately after sinning in Genesis 3, what is it that Adam and Eve try to do for themselves? They try to cover themselves. They sew fig leaves together to cover themselves. But you saw as we jumped to verse 21, God determined that that covering was not sufficient for them. And that probably makes sense, right? Could you imagine trying to wear clothes made out of leaves? Your clothes won't last very long. and probably won't do very much good for you. God saw this, and he determined to make clothes for them from animal skins. Though it's not stated explicitly in the Bible, what can we infer God did to make these clothes? Killed, right? He killed an animal. An animal had to die to give them clothing. This then is the first death in the Bible. An animal was killed to provide for Adam and Eve. And here, in the beginning of Genesis, Genesis 3, we see two principles that will extend into the rest of the Bible. First, we see that sin needs covering. Sin needs covering. And this is often symbolized by the metaphor of nakedness. We see this in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. For instance, God talks in the Old Testament about how he covers Israel's nakedness. Like he found Israel like this discarded um, baby that had no clothing and had no one to take care of it, and he covers it. He provides for it. Or sometimes when talking of judgment, God says to a wicked nation, even Israel, I will expose your nakedness. Everyone will see it. Also in the New Testament, you may remember, Christ urges one of the churches in Revelation to buy clothes from him. Why? To cover their nakedness. Now these passages do not speak of literal nakedness, but symbolically of the shame and ugliness of sin. As descendants of Adam, we all need to have the shame of our sin covered, but it has to be covered by the right clothing. Only God can provide that. If we try to cover ourselves, we will be just as insufficiently clothed as Adam and Eve with their fig leaves. So, this is another part of the gospel context we want to explain. By what means does God provide clothing and covering? Well, that's our second principle. Covering sin requires sacrifice. We see this right here in Genesis 3. It took the death of an animal to provide coverings from Adam and Eve, and All throughout the Old Testament, we see this idea come back. At the Passover, what protects them from the angel of the Lord that's going to kill the firstborns? An animal's death and the blood covering the door. And in the law of Moses, what covers the sins of the people? Sacrifices brought to the Lord of pure and unblemished animals. But these sacrifices in the Old Testament, they never ended. The people continually sinned, the priests continually had to offer these sacrifices. There was a need for a once-and-for-all sacrifice to cover and remove the sins of the people. All people would need a once-and-for-all Savior. Now, someone might ask, well, why did God let this happen? I mean, if God's a good God, why didn't he stop Adam and Eve from eating the fruit? Everyone has suffered because of what they did. Why didn't God stop it? Well, again, part of the answer is, again, God's creator. He's king. He can do whatever he wants. And whatever he does is good and just. But scripture also reveals to us that this fall would actually turn out to be a very good thing because of God's redemption plan. 1 Peter 1.20 says that Christ was foreknown since the world was created, before the world was created, God had always determined to display his glory through the special redemption of mankind. So the fall, like all tragedies and evil happenings in the world, was going to be used for good. So we see the state man was in in creation, and then we see how Adam rebelled and caused all of us to become rebels. And we suffer spiritual death, And the curse of sin ever since then. But this is a very serious issue because of what we see in the third seed. That is, that God will display his glory and anger, or his glorious anger in judgment against sin. We move to catastrophe. Let's move to Genesis chapter 6, reread a little bit about the flood. Genesis 6, verse 5. We'll read verse 5 to 8. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent, the thoughts of his heart, was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Skip to Genesis 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Now down to verse 15 in chapter 8. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps in the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So after the sin of Adam and Eve, sin and sinners continued to increase on the earth. Wickedness piled upon wickedness and became so great that God in his purity and holiness was compelled, forced to judge mankind and destroy all that was on the earth through water. He was too holy. He could not do otherwise. He had to destroy, he had to answer the wickedness that had become so great. The flood then is an example of God's justice against sin and a picture also of God's future judgment against sin. And this is why it's very gospel relevant. If you're seeing the progression here, we now see that we are sinners and we are spiritually dead, but a judgment awaits us for this, and the flood shows that clearly. Jesus makes the parallel between the flood and the coming day of judgment in Luke 17. I'll read this passage to you. In Luke 17, verses 26 to 30, our Lord says this, and just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And the flood came destroyed them all it was the same as happened in the days of lot they were eating and drinking they were buying they were selling they were planting they were building but on the day that lot went out from Sodom it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all it will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed this too is an important part of the gospel message Paul preached it on Mars Hill in Acts 17 He said, a day is coming when God will judge the world in righteousness through the one he has appointed, that is Jesus. For sinners in the line of Adam, and that's all of us, those who continually transgress God's commands, just as Adam did, this judgment will not be pretty. The shame of our nakedness will be revealed to all and before God. We will be judged, and this judgment will be most vivid in the lake of fire, that is, hell. As the New Testament tells us, it is a place of continual burning, continual thirst, continual darkness and crying and gnashing of teeth, a place where one is eaten by worms but never fully consumed, a place totally cut off from the kindness of God and a place with no way out ever. As the book of Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So There is judgment. This is bad news. A very severe judgment awaits. But in the account of the flood, we also read that Noah was saved. Noah was spared. Why? Why was Noah spared? That's right. And the last verse in chapter 6 that we read says Noah found favor in the eyes of God. How did he find favor? Did he earn it? It was grace. It was unmerited favor. And what was it that the New Testament tells us that Noah displayed? Faith. Faith, right? Hebrews eleven seven says, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. It wasn't, it, even though Noah was righteous, it wasn't his righteousness that saved him, his good behavior. It was his faith. And that faith was given to him by God. It was grace, as one of you said. It was unmerited favor that caused Noah to be saved. He was given faith and believed the promises of God, including, in some sense, the promise that God would provide a saving substitute for Noah's sin. Someday in the future, God would provide. One more piece of bad news before we get to the good news, and that's our fourth C, confusion. You see there, the added note. Noah saved on the basis of faith and God's promised provision for sin. But our fourth sea, confusion, we go back to Genesis 11. Genesis 11, verse 1. Let's refresh ourselves on the account. Now, the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower, whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they have all the same language. This is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because when the Lord confused the language of the whole earth or because the Lord there confused the language of the whole earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, in context of what I just mentioned to you, that the flood is an example of how God judges rebellion, how God will not stand wickedness. What we see at Babel is mind-boggling. You'd think that after God destroyed all humanity with a flood, that mankind would have learned to honor God and not to rebel. But only a few generations after Noah, we have man doing exactly what was happening during the flood. They were rebelling. They were refusing to scatter around the whole earth, and they were erecting a tower to their own greatness rather than to God. Just how wicked and foolish is the heart of man? Even in the face of judgment and chastening, he still rebels. Babel is a reminder of this. God confuses man's language at Babel, and he prevents, and it's a kind of weird mix of mercy and judgment, God prevents mankind from continuing in unified rebellion against him by confusing their languages the people did scatter and began to diversify. But each people group still had that fundamental problem of sin passed down from Adam. No matter if they were Philistines, American Indians, Vikings, or Jews, they all needed a savior. That's still true for us. No matter what people group you were part of, or you come from, you still have the sin curse from Adam. What's worse, from Babel, because people were split up into different groups, hatred and distrust between people groups now appears in the world. It's just another manifestation of the wicked heart of man. We've seen it in history, and it continues to the present day. Even in our country, which we would like to think is enlightened when it comes to race relations, it's still a land of lurking prejudices and racism. And in other parts of the world, there's more open hatred, with mob violence, wars, ethnic cleansing, and so forth. So more bad news. Babel shows that man's heart is hard against the judgment of God, that all people groups still have the curse of sin as their main problem, and that an added symptom is the hatred and distrust between people groups. So man, after these after these sets of bad news, is left in a very sorry state. And we're part of that. As the Bible unfolds, it only gets worse. We see the law of Moses and other of God's commands, where we are forbid from lying, from committing adultery, from committing adultery in our hearts, from hating, from covetousness, and from all forms of lust and idolatry. What person can say he has kept these commands, that he has never lied, or that he never hated another person? or that he has never had an idol that he loved more than God. Indeed, as you probably know, we do use the commands. We ought to use the commands of God when we evangelize to show that people do not meet God's standards. They say, oh, I'm a good person. I think my good outweighs the bad. No, actually, each one of us continually breaks God's commands. And even if we were to just break one, James 2.10 says, we're guilty of all. We've broken the whole law. And even the good things we do are like filthy rags before God, Isaiah 64, 6. So without a substitute, we are left with only the fearful expectation of God's hot, angry, and holy judgment. Questions so far? Yes, Shane. About 110 years. So a couple generations. Yeah, that's about how much time between the flood and Babel. Other questions? Yes, yeah, Steve. I mean, in generations, you got, when you said the word generations, you've got to be kind of careful too because of, it's not that even the people died off because you see, I, I believe if you look at the genealogies, you see some of the children of Abraham, so some of the children of Noah being around at Abraham's. Oh, hmm. I mean, yeah, I didn't think about that. We didn't have the, the low lifespans at that time. So even though there were more generations, there's still plenty of people who are uh, still living. And so even, even worse, even sadder, is that people remember the flood. Many people remember the flood, and they still rebelled. Or soon after the flood. Other questions? So lots of bad news. But people have to know the bad news, or else the good news won't be good. But there is good news, because of our fifth C, right? Our fifth C, Christ. So We're we'll jumping to the New Testament now. John 1. Turn over to John 1. John 1, verse 14, we'll read 14 to 17. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received. And grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. This was the long-awaited substitute, the Savior that everyone, even Adam and Eve, were looking forward to. You know, Genesis 3.15 actually is talking about Christ. It's a verse that gives hope about the future provision. In the midst of God giving curses on the serpent, Adam, and Eve for their sin, God says this in Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel, That said to the serpent. God gave hope to Adam and Eve that their seed, their descendant, there would be someone who would come and gain final victory over the deceiver, who led them into sin and death. This Savior would be one like Noah, who would bring his family safely through the flood of God's judgment, as Peter alludes in 1 Peter 3, 20-22. This Savior would be the one who would gather into one fold, not just the sheep of Israel, but also sheep from other folds, people of every tribe, tongue, and nation, people who could not be brought to peace otherwise because of what happened at Babel. As Ephesians two fourteen says, where Paul is explaining how Jew and Gentile brought into the church, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. This was. This was our Savior. He would be the seed of Abraham through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. He would be the descendant of David who would reign on the throne forever. And uh, he would fulfill the prophecies of the later Old Testament prophets. He would be born of a virgin in Bethlehem. He would come to suffer on behalf of his people and supply their covering, the one that was needed for their nakedness. He would bear in his body and his soul the infinite hot anger of God. So in 3 BC, around 3 BC, the provision came. Christ came into the world as God in the flesh. And he lived a perfect, perfect, happy, obedient life to the Father. And he succeeded where Adam failed. And he became a second Adam. That those who take on Christ as their head and as their representative would be set free from the curse passed down through Adam. But as we saw, to provide a covering, you need sacrifice. And this is what our Savior did with the sixth C, the cross. Let's turn briefly to 2 Corinthians 5.21. twenty-one. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him, that's God made him, Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In addition to a sinless life, Jesus willingly offered himself as a perfect sacrifice to God on the cross. God poured out his infinite wrath, normally typified in hell, on the cross toward his son. Only the God-man could endure such wrath. He had to be a man in order to be our substitute, in order to be our representative. But he had to be the infinite God to be able to bear the infinite wrath of God to completion. And Jesus' suffering, as you know, was more than his physical pain. It wasn't simply the agony of the cross, the whippings of the crown of thorns. It was the loss of sweet fellowship that he enjoyed with his father, that he had always enjoyed from eternity past. And it was the receiving of God's holy anger over sin on Christ's soul. He felt the anger of God in all its burning fury toward him because of sin. But Christ drank the full cup of God's wrath and fury. He was the only one who could, and he did it. And he was able to cry before giving up his spirit, It is finished. I have taken all of the wrath of God against sin for those who believe in me to demonstrate to all people that his sacrifice was accepted by the Father and that he had conquered sin and death once and for all for those who believe in him. Jesus rose bodily from the grave on the third day. He then appeared to 500 eyewitnesses before he ascended to heaven and again took his place at the right hand of the Father. The substitute had provided the covering. and The wrath was satisfied. And now... Jesus awaits the seventh sea, as do we, the consummation. <clears throat> Let's turn to Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 8. We'll reread this section. It talks about the consummation. <clears throat> 21, verse 1, Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, And there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain, The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But... For the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So when the consummation, as as we share the gospel message, is both a message of hope but also a reminder of terror. Jesus is coming again to judge the world and reign in righteousness. He's going to redeem his creation fully. He's going to set up his millennial kingdom before he creates a new heaven and a new earth and then where he dwells with his people for all eternity. That's his people. If you're not part of his people, if you haven't taken him as your second Adam, if he isn't your representative, then you will not enjoy him forever. Instead, you'll be tormented forever in the lake of fire. So to summarize, the good news. We've seen the bad news that we became cursed through Adam, that we continually rebel against God, that God shows forth that he will judge such sin in the flood, and that we are still resistant even in the face of that, as Babel showed. All people are in need of God's saving. And then we see that God has provided that. The good news is that in Christ, God sent his son to be the long-awaited substitute for mankind's sin. He took on humanity, lived a perfectly righteous life. And on the cross, he suffered God's full wrath against sin. He died, he was buried, and he rose again the third day. And by conquering sin and death in this way, he has made the exchange with those who believe in him. He takes their sin, they gain his infinite righteousness. And now he waits and we wait for the consummation where he comes back to finally judge the earth, to cast into eternal fire those who do not believe and to dwell eternally with those who do believe. I keep mentioning the word believe. What does it mean to believe? Jesus would often say, when we talk about how do I transfer myself into Christ as my representative, Jesus would often say, repent and believe. Repent and believe the gospel. The gospel is what I've explained. Essentially, these seven C's. The good news and the bad news. To say it one other way, I often break down their repentant belief statement into four, four parts. These aren't chronological, but they're all things that happen when somebody chooses to believe. He confesses that what God says about him, about him and his sin is true, as we've reviewed with corruption and catastrophe. He also believes that what, what the Bible says about Jesus and his work on the cross is true that he's the Savior, that he's the Son of God and that he's fully paid for sin on his, with his death. They repent. They turn away from their old way of life, the one that was committed to serving sin and self. And then they commit to living the rest and every part of their lives for God, that is, enjoying God and in obedience to God. Questions about the good news or the bad news of the gospel? Yeah, Paul. Okay. Hmm. Hmm. Uh-huh. hmm. Thanks for mentioning that, Paul. So this track, The Story, is, is called? Normally over there by the entrance. It, it does the same thing that we're talking about here. Don't feel like, oh, if I don't mention every single C, then I haven't proclaimed the gospel. Well, this is a way to make sure that you've explained the bad news and the good news. Whatever way you explain the gospel, you need to make sure they really understand what 1 Corinthians 15, one, or 3-5 to five was talking about, that they understand the bad news so that they can understand and embrace the good news. And that track is doing the same thing, the story. Any other questions? Well, before we finish today, we should ask one other question. Or I already asked it, but I want to answer it. What is the goal of the gospel? What's the ultimate goal? We see what the gospel is. We see how, how it is accomplished, but where is it supposed to lead us ultimately? What's the whole point? Well, I want to answer this question from two perspectives. I want to answer it from God's perspective, and I want to answer it from our perspective. What is the goal of the gospel? Let's first talk about how God views it. Why did God create man? And then why did God choose to redeem man? Why did he do this? Well, fundamentally, why does God do anything? If you say, well, it's because he wanted to. That's true. But why did he want to? What was it that God was seeking for himself? Eric. It's glory, right? If you want to know why God does anything, it's always about his glory. It's for the sake of his own glory. And we see this all over the scriptures. Let me, let me say it in, in one sentence. God always acts in such a way that he might be true to, that he might revel in, and that he might display his own glorious existence. That is the ultimate reason why God does anything. Listen to what God says to apostate Israel in Isaiah 48, 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. God always acts for his own glory the psalmist, appeals to God on that basis. Listen to Psalm 79.9. Help us, O God, of our salvation for, what reason? The glory of your name. And deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. God, I know this is why you act according to your glory. So act, God. God. Or listen to Paul's explanation of God's sovereignty and salvation in Romans 9, verses 21 to 24. Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. It's pretty powerful. And maybe that may take a little time to to swallow. Vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy are there to display the glory of God for God to be true to, to revel in, and to display his glory. Creation and the gospel are all about the glory of God. It's not that God was deficient of glory or needful of worship or needed anything that he could get from his creation. No, indeed, for God to be God, he must be perfectly satisfied with what is already in himself. If he needs something outside of himself, then something else is greater than God, and God can't be God. No, God is perfectly satisfied in his own triune existence. But, In eternity past, God determined that it would fit his glory, that it would please his enjoying his own glory, his own nature, to create a bride for the son. A bride that would be a reflection of the son. And that the son would have to redeem at the cost of obedience unto death. After purifying this bride, the Son will then present her in perfect righteousness back to the Father as the Son's bride forever. This was all about God enjoying, displaying, and being true to his own glory. Creation and redemption are all about God continually giving giving himself what he already has, infinite glory. Well, what about us then? What is the goal of the gospel for us? If God is concerned about his glory, what's there for us? Actually, the Bible gives us a number of motivations for embracing the gospel. Sometimes they're things that we pursue even after we're saved, things that we look to for comfort or for encouragement or to enjoy. But which of these motivations is actually ultimate? One of the reasons we're told to follow God is that we'll be blessed. You'll have blessings in this life if you follow after the Lord. That's what Proverbs says. Is that the ultimate reason? Another reason we're told to seek the Lord is to be delivered from God's wrath, delivered from hell. We're commanded to use that as a motivation, but is that the ultimate reason? We're also commanded to look towards reward in heaven, heaven itself, various things that are there in heaven. We're supposed to be motivated by that, but is that the ultimate reason? Well, what about acceptance and love from God? God talks many times about how much he loves us, how we're adopted, how we're accepted into his family. That's supposed to comfort us. That's supposed to encourage us. But is that the ultimate motivation? Is that where we rest? I would argue, I would assert, that where we rest is a place that we've already seen in this course. Remember what we talked about with Moses? Moses asked God in Exodus thirty-three eighteen, 18, for this, I pray you, show me your glory. Moses asked God for God to show Moses his glory. And Jesus prayed to the Father for the same thing. John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that... Why? Why do you want us to be with you, Jesus? Why do you want us to be in heaven with you? So that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. I won't read the passage, but if you go to Revelation and you look at the vision of heaven and the elders there, what are they doing? Worshiping God, glorifying God, observing and then responding to God's glory. Really, I hope to persuade you the ultimate goal of the gospel for us is the same as God's ultimate goal. That is, to see, experience, and enjoy the glory of God. To behold all of God's beauty, to behold all his attributes, all his character, and to enjoy it, now and forever. And isn't this only logical? If God finds something supremely satisfying, and he's the all-wise and powerful being in the universe, wouldn't it also be the most satisfying treasure for us? Therefore, we can rightly say that God's goal in creation and redemption of glorifying himself always and continually is the most loving thing he could do for us, his creatures, because God glorifying himself directs us to the most satisfying well of happiness, which is God's glory, God himself. God's glory, it's said before, but I want to say it again, God's glory is our ultimate good. Now, is this to say that these other gospel motivators and comforts are wrong and not to be sought or used? No, I'm not saying that. But we must recognize that any of these other motivators are just stepping stones. They are means to the ultimate goal. Yes, we should seek, and the people we speak to when we evangelize, should seek to be delivered from hell and to get into heaven. That's a good gospel motivation. That's biblical. But it's only good ultimately because heaven is where you get to see the glory of God. Yes, we should seek to be encouraged by the love and adoption that we have in God through Christ Jesus. But we can't stop there. Being justified, having that love of God that won't leave you, is only good because of what you obtain through it. God himself. The fact that you are perfectly righteous before God, and the fact that he loves you, is good because that shows you his glory, that enables you to see his glory. If we stop short of the ultimate pursuit of God and his glory in the gospel, we are actually in danger of turning God's gifts, like deliverance from hell, like blessings in this life, like adoption through Christ, etc., into idols we can actually turn these sweet theological truths and blessings into idols rather than the means that they were meant to be for us to enjoy God. While someone may not fully understand the ultimate purpose of the gospel when he is saved, it's important that we all grow in this understanding. The ultimate goal of the gospel is not heaven, blessing, or acceptance. It's always God himself. Some have said it. I've said it, I think, in this class. The gospel is God. This is the true fuel for our whole Christian life. It, when rightly understood, will lead to happy evangelism, happy service, happy holiness. Because you get God in all those things. That's all the time we have for today. Didn't get to the application questions, but I encourage you to talk about those with one another during the, the fellowship time. We'll talk about them later with your family. We have one more week for our memory verse. Let's see next week if we've learned it. It's not that long, so hopefully you've memorized it by now. If you have any questions, you want to say more about what I talked about today, come see me afterwards. Let's pray as we close. Lord God, Lord God, the truth of why you act and what you've done on our behalf And the truth about yourself is so profound. I feel like even today, I've only scratched the surface, what it means to be given access to your glory. God, help us to grow in that. Help us to see the sweetness of what is the ultimate goal of the gospel. Thank you, God, for being so gracious as to manifest your kindness to us as vessels of mercy. We pray, Lord, that you would give us more opportunity to share the gospel, that we might bring more of your elect ones to yourself, for the joy that's available to us as we pursue and display your glory. pray, God, that as we revel in your different gifts gifts that you've given us, that we never turn any of those into an idol, but rather that we always use them as a means to enjoy you more. Bless the rest of this service today. In Jesus' name, amen.